Um, this is what you call on Sunday mornings here at Westridge an open Sunday, um, which means we're in between series. And um, on Labor Day weekend, as I said, normally the attendance is low. I, I can't remember the last time I actually spoke on a Labor Day weekend, but I just wanted to this morning because I just, God had put something on my heart several, several months ago, and, um, and I wanted to speak on it this morning because I just feel like we're in a place in our country in a place in society, um, many of you are feeling this, where we just need some courage. We just need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We need to be reminded of who we belong to. And we just need a little bit of, of just Jesus Christ courage, Holy Spirit-led courage, just kind of pumped into our lives. So that's what I'm going to speak about um, this morning using a very, very familiar story. Now, oftentimes, you know, when we think of courage, we think of firefighters running into burning buildings and rescuing people or soldiers going into battle or police officers, you know, you know, risking their lives to, to, to arrest criminals. And, you know, we have some great sheriffs in this building. And I don't know if you know this or not, but every uh, Thursday at 530, um, some pastors like myself, I got a chance to do this this past week, and citizens get in front of the uh, sheriff's office here in Paulding County and pray over the sheriffs that want to attend. And it's really cool, by the way. If you ever want to be part of that, you just go to that. Thursdays at 530, which is awesome. I was so honored to be part of that this week. But, you know, and, and then when you think of courage, we think of like extreme things like bungee jumping or skydiving or free climbing. That's basically stupidity. But... Um, <laughs> But it takes courage even to be stupid sometimes. But I think that sometimes we, we equate, we equate um, courage with something extraordinary, something unusual, or, or even something or life-threatening or dangerous. And so as a result, too often, we don't, we don't, think, we don't think of courage as something that to strive for or you know, a value to, to try to obtain. Oftentimes we strive for, you know, for other things like honesty and integrity and faithfulness. And all of those are great things. But, but here's what we need to understand. It takes courage to be honest today in, in today's society, doesn't it? I mean, it takes courage to really have integrity when everything's pulling against that. And it takes a lot of courage to be faithful to the commitments that you have made, not only to, to the Lord, but to your spouse, to your children, to a workplace, whatever that looks like. It takes courage to do those things. So with all of that said, I want to try to do my best to define what courage what courage is. Courage is just real simple, um, is the ability to do something that frightens you, to just do something that scares you to death. Um, Mark Twain says, courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. I love John Wayne's uh, definition of courage. Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyways. Courage is, is a guy like a Josh Wyatt, who you just go, we just showed on the screen a few moments ago, who grew up here in Dallas, Georgia, who went to Liberty University, felt called to ministry, and now has planted two churches in Boston, or actually one in Western Massachusetts and another one now in Boston. And, and as he mentioned, one of the lowest income areas uh, in all of, all of Boston. And yet he's reaching 52% of his church are not just minorities. They are people from different parts of the world. 48% are, are whites, African-Americans, and Hispanics, and others, Asians. And that's, a, that's what I call courage. Courage to me is, uh, when you think even more so, is, is a guy like a Terrence Lester, with Love Beyond Walls, who, who is now, uh, in, in, this morning, he's walking almost to Spartanburg, South Carolina. He started in Atlanta about 15, 16 days ago, walking 648 miles to Washington, D.C. to raise awareness for poverty and homelessness in our nation. I mean, I look at that and that, that's, that's courage. 
But you know, courage is not just even about doing the extraordinary. It's, it's also about just consistently day in and day out, trusting the power of an extraordinary God to engage your ordinary life. That's courage. It's fighting to save your marriage, even if it means I'm going to swallow my pride, I'm going to go to a counselor, and I'm going to blow things up for the sake of healthiness. That's courage. When a man decides that he's going to, to trust the power of God to, 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 in his life, to, to break the generational sin of pornography for the sake of his marriage and his children and generations to come, that's courage. When a, when a woman decides that she's going to let Christ be the source of her strength and the one that meets her needs instead of trying to find her identity in, in relationships or in her body image. That, that's, that's courage. Recently, the, the Pew Research Organization came out with a statistic that, that stated that 23% now of USA adults classified themselves as either an atheist, an agnostic, or what they're now calling uh, a, a nun, an N-O-N-E meaning that they don't believe in nothing in particular. And 35% of millennials, which means those who were born between 1981 and 1996, would classify themselves in this category of, of, of none. And, and the percentages, every time they take this, uh, these surveys and statistics, the, this, the, the, the percentages go up drastically. And we have millennials that are in this church right now, students in this church who are choosing to go against the growing pressures of culture and instead are making a choice, a very difficult choice to live for Christ. And I say, that's courage. We have college students. I mean, think of how hard it is to to be a college student in most colleges. It's courageous for a college student to, to, to make a choice to believe in and stand for God's word when smart, brilliant, in, in the eyes of the world, professors are teaching against God's word and tearing it apart. It's courageous and inspiring every time I see young parents trust God and make a decision to value their children's growth above all the tugs and poles of travel this and travel that and this and that. And trust me, I have felt those pressures firsthand in my life. Some of you are trying to engage a lost friend or a family member with the gospel. That's courageous. In today's society, it takes courage for for a church to deliberately choose to tear down racial barriers that have divided Christians for centuries on Sunday morning. That's courage. It takes courage to push against all of the hatred and the negativity that's in our society today to, to bring a message of love and hope and grace to our broken world. See, courage is not just for extreme situations. Courage is a choice that we make every single day in ordinary situations. Courage is is foundational to every other virtue that's out there. So much that I believe that it's absolutely impossible to really be a growing, uh, uh, truly fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ without it. It's impossible to consistently be obedient to Christ without courage. Without courage, all of our other virtues will be weak. They will be always compromised and they will always fade away at the slightest challenge. In order to be different in this world today to the point that you are a strong, resolved, resilient follower of Jesus Christ, you must be, cur- you must be courageous. I don't care if you're, you're eight years old or if you're 85 years old. You have to be courageous. Courage is, one of, is the one quality in our lives that allows us to face our fears head on and move forward in spite of them. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of my very favorite stories in the Bible. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. 28 years of teaching the Bible, this isn't my first time teaching this. I don't know how many times I've taught it, to be honest with you, but I, but I love this story. 
And if you've grown, if you've grown up in church, you, you probably know the story very well. You know how it starts, you know how it ends. If you didn't grow up in church and your knowledge of the Bible maybe is somewhat limited, chances are along the way you've been made aware that there was a man in this book, in the Bible, named Daniel, who got thrown into a lion's den and God miraculously shut the mouths of the lions so he would not be eaten. However, all, all of us too often, we, we forget about this story. We, we, we forget about what actually got Daniel to be caused to throw in, to, thrown into the lion's den in the first place and how, how God used this story to not only change the heart of a, of a king, but how it impacted the culture that was, 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 was going on at the time. This is, a, this is a story of a very courageous man, some hungry lions, and a very faithful God, and a little bit of courage. Now, let me give you a little background on this story. Uh, as you know, or you may not know, but when Daniel, the book of Daniel actually starts, Daniel and, and several other young men have been brought out of Israel, and they have been brought into captivity, taken as slaves, and brought up to Babylon, about a 600-mile journey north into what we would know today to be modern-day Iraq. And they are placed into this training to become servants of the King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember the story, Daniel he basically purposes in his heart as a teenager that he will not defile his God by eating the king's meat or drinking the king's wine. And so over time, as you get from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and chapter 3, is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 5 is is Belshazzar takes over from his dad, Nebuchadnezzar. Then we get into chapter 6, and you find that the Medes and the Persians, which would have been Iran, have now conquered Iraq, and they have taken and all of these, these citizens of Jerusalem now into captivity in, in, in Persia. And now Daniel is part of the Persian empire instead of part of the Babylonian empire. So there's a little background. And now the king is also a guy by the name of King Darius, who's 62 years old at the time this story takes place. Let's start reading. Ready? Well, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, in what, to, what seemed to be a very, very bright strategic move, King Darius decides to come up with an organizational flowchart for the leadership over the Medes, the Persians, and the, Babylon, and the Babylonians. And, and he's got a lot of ground that he needs to, to cover, and he's got a lot of territory, and he needs leadership. So here's what he does. He sets aside about 120 different men called satraps, uh, which we would maybe look at as being governors, three, three guys to rule over them, be presidents. So each guy had about 40 satraps traps to each guy. And at the very top of the flow chart, he places the name Daniel. Because the Bible says that Daniel distinguished himself with exceptional qualities. Now, if you didn't know anything else that was going to happen in this story, here's what you would know from just reading the first three verses. Okay, you're going to know right from the very first three verses that Darius has going, has already created some problems for himself. Because first, anytime that you take a bunch of leaders, a bunch of, of, of government leaders who have all equal authority and you start moving them around on a flow chart, you're going to have some issues. And that's exactly what's happening here. You got 120 governors, three presidents, and you have 
Daniel, who is now made head over all of them. Now, second, and probably the most notable thing, I want you to remember where this story takes place. This, this story is being played out somewhere in modern-day Iraq and Iran. And Daniel, remember, he's not a Babylonian. He's not a Mede. He's not a Persian. He's Jewish. The Jewish people have been in conflict with the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians since the time that Abraham had a son with an Egyptian woman named Hagar and another son with a woman by the name of Sarah who was Jewish. Now imagine a Jewish man today being elevated in power to lead Iran. That's what you have going on here in this story. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so out of a lot of insecurity, out of a lot of jealousy, these high officials, they decide that they're going to try to dig up some dirt on Daniel. Folks, listen, nothing's changed. Politics are politics no matter what century you live in. It's just not being reported on CNN right now. What What did these guys find in Daniel's life? Here's what they found when they examined his life. They found a man who was faithful to his duties and faultless in his character. These guys hated Daniel because of integrity and character. And, were, and, and they were jealous because Daniel had favor with King Darius. So since they couldn't nail him on his character or, his, or find any skeletons in his closet, they come up with a plan to use his devotion to God against him. Verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came to, by agreement to the king and said, to him, O King Darius, live forever. It's a little political kissing up to the king. Verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors, we've all agreed together that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. In other words, these guys play into Darius's ego at the moment. And Darius forgets about Daniel. Now, when the Daniel, verse 10, knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, if our man Daniel had one flaw in his life, it was this. His prayer life was way too predictable. Because every day, three times a day, facing Jerusalem with windows wide open, Daniel got down on his knees and he prayed to God. Now, now don't miss the last line of verse 10 because it's extremely important. As he had done previously. In other words, praying wasn't something that Daniel started to do just so he could be a rebel at this moment or, or to tick off his enemies. No, no. It's what he had always done. Now, here's what's important that you need to know about Daniel. Daniel is about 85 years old 
when this story takes place. Now, if you're 85 years old you've been, and you've been praying like this for your whole life and you've seen God answer prayer and you've seen God be faithful time in and time out, you're not going to stop praying because some government official has threatened your life. It's just not going to happen. Your faith in God is too strong, it's too deep, it's what anchors you, it's what centers your life, it's your foundation. And folks, listen, this is not some isolated story that's just unique to ancient times. What we need to understand is that Christians have been martyred for their faith for centuries. If you know anything about how the disciples' lives ended, they were martyred for their faith. They went to execution believing, never wavering on their story about Jesus. This past week, I read, I read some stories in, in, from an organization called Voice of the Martyrs of Christians in Yemen, in India, in China, in the Sudan, in Russia, in Cuba, in Niger, in Colombia, Uganda, places all over the country where Christians are being threatened and persecuted for their faith. We're beginning to hear stories about this in the United States. But Daniel was not threatened by the satraps and the edicts and certainly not the lions because he knew who he was. He was a foreigner living in a land that worshipped foreign idols, but he knew that he was a child of the one true God. He knew where he was going. As soon as he breathed his last breath, he knew that he would be in God's very presence. So when the edict was given, Daniel was not going to be swayed by fear. He was just going to keep doing what he had always been doing, openly and courageously, with, with, without compromise, seeking the Lord. And he did it in plain view so that everyone could see it. He wasn't trying to show off. He wasn't parading it around. He's just doing what he'd always been doing. Now, most people associate Daniel's courage with the lion's den, but I believe that the real lion's den was Daniel's prayer room. It's the room where Daniel prayed every day. Daniel exercised his greatest feats of courage when he got down on his, on his knees three times a day and he prayed to his God because that's where the battle was truly fought and won every day. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king Daniel, Daniel, who is the one of the exiles from Judah, he, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, that makes his, and, but he makes his petition three times a day. These guys finally, they finally think they found something to nail Daniel to the wall. Verse 14, then the king, when he, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Darius now realizes he's been tricked by these satraps. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the kings establish can be changed. You've already done it. It can't be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought, and he was cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, may he deliver you. 
Daniel is now sitting in a den surrounded by hungry lions. A stone's been placed over the entrance. The king has had to take his royal seal and put his imprint from his royal ring onto the entrance of the, of, 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 of the den so that, so that no one, Daniel's not getting out of there and no one's getting in there to rescue him. I mean, you think this is a barbaric, brutal way to die, but that's how they rolled back then. You, you have to know that the crime rate was low in the kingdom back then, all right? But I want to make a, a quick point before we find out what happens to Daniel. I want you to know that Daniel could have avoided this whole scenario. I mean, you know, things didn't have to get to this point. He, he had a, a great job in the kingdom. He was loved by the king. He probably had a nice house. He had nice clothes. He had a great benefit package, great insurance. He had the kingdom at his fingertips. He was set for life and for retirement. Plus, he's 85 years old. Daniel could have finished off his life, just a very wealthy, content man. And he could have avoided this whole situation if he would have just done one of three things. If he would have just hidden his faith, compromised his convictions, or done absolutely nothing. You see, you can avoid a lot of criticism and problems if you just hide your faith, compromise, or do nothing. But what do you feel like at the end of the day? A sellout, a coward. What do you miss out on? Intimacy with God, knowing that your life stands for something greater than this life, and you miss out on seeing God do the miraculous. Look at verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and slept. He slept and, and sleep fled from him. I, I love the fact that the king couldn't sleep. But just think how Daniel slept. I mean, here he is. I mean, he's got these huge, soft, harmless lions. They can't touch him. He's got the best pillows and blankets all over the place. He just snuggled up to these little soft cuddles. He's got, they, they can't hurt him. And the Bible says that morning, at the break of dawn, Darius runs down to the lion's den to check on Daniel. Look at verse 20. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be, in, be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. Now, there's a lot of pictures that have been painted over the years, a lot of cartoons. I, I learned this story on flannel graph, honestly. But this is one of my favorite pictures. This is an old man who had on his robe of being in charge of the whole kingdom with all of these very helpless, hungry lions who want to, they probably want to do some, some damage to him, but they just can't. And there's Daniel just looking up, answering Darius. Because I've been, I've been blameless to God, he's helped me. Daniel spends the evening in a pit with a bunch of hungry lions and he gets pulled out in the morning without even a scratch. You say, how does something like that happen? I mean, that's almost unbelievable. Nothing fancy, but all of his life, Daniel has been courageously trusting in God. 
Daniel didn't just start trusting in God when he got thrown in the lion's den. No, no, no. He had been trusting in God all along. He, he was uncompromising when, a, when he was a teenager. You remember, remember in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8? It says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile his God by eating the king's meat and drinking his wine. And now we hear, here he is, 85 years old, and he still has the very same resolve. Listen, it takes courage to trust God day in and day out, doesn't it? To walk with him consistently. And sometimes we, we, we like to promote people who have these wild, crazy stories and testimonies for, as being, you know, our models for courage. But you know what? Some of you in this room here today, you have walked courageously with God all of your lives. You don't have some big story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You've been walking with God since you, were, since you were a little girl or you were a little boy. And some of you in this room, you actually feel guilty about it. But in my opinion, you are the champions of courage. It takes a huge amount of courage to live in this society, in this time, and in this day, to live a consistent life for Christ. You are the Daniels of this world today. Don't you ever feel guilty for that. But here's something else to think about. God God could have prevented Daniel from being thrown in the lion's den. You think about this for a moment, back in chapter three of Daniel, God could have prevented Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from being thrown into the fiery furnace. But on both occasions, what happened? He chose not to. Instead, he chose to go into the trouble with his children. What an amazing thought. God doesn't allow us just to go through times alone. He goes through those tough times with us. He walks with us. Who was in this den with him? An angel of God. Who was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 24. And then the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the pit, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. This is brutal. Darius, the pagan king, he kills all of Daniel's accusers and their families. But I love this. He was so encouraged and so inspired by Daniel's courage and his faithfulness to his God that he makes a decree that the whole nation, the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians will now fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. And then he pens these words. He writes down, he says, for he is the living God. He will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. And he rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, if you don't think a life of uncompromising courage to God makes a difference in the the lives of unbelieving people, listen, you need to just keep remembering the story of Daniel. I love what Billy Graham says. He says, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. So how in the world, in today's society, where there's a growing amount of unbelief, when it seems like society is pushing against Christ, pushing against God's word, making it more difficult for Christians to even to stand, how can we have an uncompromising courage like Daniel? First of all, You need to know that courage is birth over time as we walk in intimacy with God. Real, live, authentic, uncompromising courage 
comes from walking closely with God day in and out, day out, through the, through the mountains, through the valleys, through the good times, through the bad times. There's a story in Acts chapter 4 that many of you are very familiar with. After Jesus has ascended and the church has begun out of Acts chapter 2, Peter and John go into the temple courtyard and they start preaching Jesus. And the, and, and the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes, they've had enough of it and they come against Peter and John and they basically said, you can no longer preach in that name. And Peter and John said, you can do what you, with, 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 us, with us what you want, but we will never stop preaching in that name. And in verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Where did Peter and John get the courage? They had been with Jesus. And now they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, I I learned this very early in my life. If I was going to walk consistently with God, if I was going to be courageous, if I was going to have any kind of wisdom, any kind of strength throughout the day, and, and, and as I got into ministry, if I was going to ever be able to lead people, I had to meet with Jesus early in the morning. I had to get up early and spend time with my heavenly father. I had, to, I had to spend time in the presence of Jesus, in his word, praying and journaling in solitude before the day ever got rolling. And it's still just, it's, it's, it's part of my life. When the, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the phone goes off with the alarm, I got to get in my prayer room. I have to. Because that's where courage comes from. Because I don't have courage in my own. I, just need, I don't have the kind of courage that God has called me to, to, to have. But it's birthed in my prayer room over time in intimacy with God in the presence of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't have the courage to stand up here like this outside of being in that prayer room. A.W. Tozer says, when entering the prayer chamber, we must come filled with faith and armed with courage. Nowhere else in the whole field of religious thought and activity is courage so necessary as in prayer. Second, courage is shaped. It's birthed in our intimacy, but it's shaped as we choose to walk in obedience to God's word. Let me tell you what I believe are the two most important words found in the Bible. Ready? In Christ. In Christ. This book right here calls us to courageously do the impossible every single day. To live a righteous life. To be holy. To set ourselves apart from the world. To live free from sin. To forgive others who have hurt us and not hold grudges against them. To love our enemies. Listen, that's courageous stuff. That's impossible stuff. I've been meditating on this verse over the summer from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. It says this. It is because of him, because of God, the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. How can we courageously walk in obedience to God's word in today's culture? How can I be holy? How can I be righteous? How can I set myself apart? How can I try to live blameless? How can I try to set myself apart from, from walking in sin? How in the world can I conquer temptation? It's Jesus. Because of the fact that God sent Jesus to die for my sins and to offer me forgiveness, to adopt me into his very own family, and now to call me a child of God, the Bible says that now I am in Christ. 
How, listen, how can we courageously walk in obedience to God's word? It's impossible. What God's called us to do is impossible. How can we pull off the impossible in an impossible culture? Here's how we do it. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our holiness. He's our redeemer. He's our strength. He's our wisdom. And he is our defender. That's the only way it happens. Because without Jesus, we can do what? Nothing. God's called us to do the impossible. But he's made, things, he's made all things possible because of Jesus. And I've learned that every time I die to myself and I let him live through me by the power of the Holy Spirit, not only does he help me to live in obedience, but every time I do it, my courage grows a little bit stronger. How is that? How is that? Because Jesus is my courage. Jesus is my courage. He's our strength. How are we going to do this? How are we going to be obedient to this world in this growing culture? that's continuing to push against this, Jesus is our courage. When we're in Christ, that means that Jesus is living his life through us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out what God's calling us to do. The impossible is made possible because God makes all all things possible through Jesus. And then the third thing, courage is strengthened. It's strengthened as we meet God at the crossroads of fear and faith. Some of you in this room today, you are fearful of the future. You are fearful of the upcoming election. You're fearful for your children. You're fearful for your grandchildren. You're fearful of terrorism. You're fearful of the economy diving again. You're fearful of being persecuted for being a Christian. Listen, as Daniel contemplated whether or not he was going to stop praying to the king or to to actually obey the edict of the king. Here's what Daniel had running through his life. Think about this. He had a string of God's faithfulness running through his life. Listen, from the time he was taken out of Israel as a young man and taken to a pagan land over 600 miles away, he knew that God was with him every step of the way. When Daniel refused to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine, God came through and met him at the crossroads of fear and faith. And Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile his God. And God met him, string of faithfulness. You know that Daniel was right there watching as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire furnace because they refused to bow to a giant image of King Nebuchadnezzar. He watched them walk into a furnace only to be protected by Jesus himself. Time and time again, Daniel's courage was strengthened every time he chose faith over fear. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. Every time you stand at the crossroads of faith and fear, whether it's in a, in a relationship situation, whether it involves your purity, whether it involves your integrity, whether it involves your obedience, whether it involves the decisions you make with your children, whether it, it involves what you do with your job, and you choose to courageously choose faith over fear as hard as it may be, as lonely as it may get. Listen, as much as you feel like the world is pushing against you, you will start to notice a string of God's faithfulness running through your life. And as you lean into his faithfulness, your resolve will be strengthened. It'll be strengthened to be a man, a woman, a student, a child of uncompromising courage. But it's birthed over time 
in our intimacy with God, in our prayer room. It's shaped as you choose to let Christ live his life through you, being in Christ as you you walk in obedience to his word. And it's strengthened as you continue to meet God at the crossroads of fear and faith and you choose faith. Courage is the ability to do something that scares you to death, that frightens you. What's God calling you to do today that scares you, that frightens you, that has you shaken? Jesus is your courage. Jesus is your courage. He will be your courage. Regardless of what you face in the future, regardless of what the future may bring us, Jesus is our courage. And everything that God has called to do, us to do in this impossible world that is truly impossible, he has made it possible because with, all, with Jesus, all things are what? Possible. We have nothing to fear. We can walk through this life with what? Not just courage, but uncompromising courage. Amen? Amen. We're getting ready to take communion. It takes courage to take communion. I don't know if you know that or not, because here's how. You can't come to the table without confessing sin. The Bible says don't come to the table without confessing sin, without making things right with people. You're gonna hold grudges, don't come to the table. You're gonna hold, if you're you're not gonna forgive your brother, your sister, don't, don't come. If you're gonna come with sin, putting yourself in danger. It takes courage to do what we're about to do, to have a moment of repentance, to have a moment of asking God to cleanse us, to confess our sins before him. So those of you that are serving communion, I want you to, if you would, just to quietly get in your places. Would the rest of you bow your head for just a moment? Some of you may be going, what what is all this in Christ stuff? It takes courage to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone today. To, to confess with your mouth that he is the only way to God, that he is the true son of God. And that one day all other gods will bow before him. It takes courage to do that. But God offers you that opportunity today to put your faith and trust in Christ alone and what he's done for you, to receive forgiveness for things to be made right between you and God. That's impossible without Jesus. So with heads bowed, if that's where you are today, Would you courageously, as God is calling you to come to the altar, would you accept his free gift of salvation that has been offered to you by grace? Would you receive it by faith today? If that's who you are, pray with me. Say, Lord, at this very moment, I put my faith and trust in you alone. I don't even understand all of this, but I know something's going on in my life. It's calling me, it's prompting me, it's the Holy Spirit of God. I wanna put my faith and my trust in Christ alone today. I ask Jesus to be my savior. I ask God to forgive me. Would you forgive me of my sins? Lord, what what Jesus has done for me on the cross is enough to forgive me of all of my sins, to cleanse me, to make things right between me and you and to guarantee me a home in heaven. And I want that today. And I courageously accept Jesus into my life. Thank you for the grace that I don't deserve.